0: Welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast, where we share resources by and for adoptive and foster moms. I'm Lisa Qualls.
1: And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it and we're here for you. Good morning,
0: Lisa. Happy Valentine's Day week. Well, good morning to you, Melissa. Yes, this is kind of a
1: fun little little thing. I don't know. Do you do much to celebrate Valentine's Day? I don't. I mean, I kind of feel like all the holidays are just a disruption to... (laughs) <laughs> something extra, something extra to worry about. I'm such a Scrooge. I'm so sorry. I, I don't know. So I also, even before I was a stressed out trauma crisis, you know, late in mother, um, Valentine's day, I think was just, not in Patrick's and my wheelhouse. Like that's not our thing. He, we kind of both felt like it was like an invention of Hallmark and everything that we would like to do for each other just was more expensive. I don't know. So we don't do it a ton actually at all. Well, Russ and I have never
0: made it a really big holiday for ourselves, but I usually do something for the kids And, you know, I grew up with a mom who was really good about the small holidays. So like on Valentine's Day, we'd always get a pair of like Valentine's socks or something like that. And, um, you know, when things were their very hardest, that all fell away. And I was not good at all about any holidays. I mean, I barely made it through Christmas and birthdays, but now in the last few years, I usually do something like I'll buy those little cellophane bags, you know, and I'll tuck little treats, often just little treats in it. Or the girls I might get, what have I gotten from them? Maybe socks or, you know, just little small things. But I don't do a lot, but I do think it's like a little teeny bit of joy. So, and we need more of that. So, yeah, I'll do a little something. I haven't figured it out and it's almost here, so I better get it together.
1: Yeah, my mom was also really good at the little holidays. and. Valentine's Day is actually when she always liked to do gingerbread houses. We never, it was always too crazy at Christmas. So she would always buy them on clearance after Christmas. And then we would decorate it with Valentine's-ish candies, you know, like the little red hearts and, can't you know, leftover candy canes from Christmas because they were red and white and... So I do have a lot of memories of that growing up. Um, and there was, of course, there was the year where she thought it was a good idea to make a gingerbread house from scratch. Like we rolled out the dough, <laughs> cut out the things. And anyway, so. so that's kind I of- like that idea.
0: Yeah, I really like that idea because, you know, homes and families are about love and you could kind of, yeah, I think that's a neat idea. I, I did not know that. So I did not buy any gingerbread houses on clearance, but it's a good idea. I might try that in the future. Yeah, next year. There's always next year, Lisa. Yeah, there's all, oh, yeah, these holidays, they do keep coming around. So, well, I'm really looking forward to hearing today's interview. I have not gotten to listen to it yet, but I'm really looking forward to it. And I'm looking forward to sharing it with our listeners. Do you want to tell us a little bit about it?
1: Yeah, so we're welcoming Robin Goebel back to the podcast this week. We recorded part one last week, and she did a fabulous job of just helping us know different ways to regulate through sensory movement and play. So if you didn't get to listen to that, head back to episode 25. You can get there by going to theadoptionconnection.com slash 25. But, you know, there's kind of this lingering question about, well, it's all fine and well to have some things that we can build into our schedules that help our kids develop those brain skills. But what about in the moment? You know, what if our we don't have those calm moments, those regulated moments. What if it feels like we're always in the moment and so we can't kind of get ahead of it. So Robin was kind enough to come back and address that topic, which I'm super excited about because I will tell you, and I think I said this when I talked to her, that that is probably the number one question or one of the top questions that we get when we're chatting with moms and kind of asking what their biggest needs are. And what do we do in the moment you know we all know what to do in our heads in moments of you know sanity and our kids do too you know our kids can often say you know well I should use my words or I should accept pick a choice or accept a compromise or ask for a compromise but then their lid flips and it all goes away just like that so Mm -hmm. I'm really excited to hear what Robin has to say. Well, hi, Robin. Welcome back this week. We're super excited to have you. We talked so thoroughly last week about the things that we can kind of do every day, sensory things that are really doing the building blocks of helping our kids' brains get more to where we want them to be. And you had said at the beginning of that, you know, there's things that we can do kind of ongoing, and then they're also kind of in the moment, which Mm -hmm. of course made my ears perk up. Mm Mm-hmm. I was telling you before we started recording that when families come to us, that's probably the number one asked question is like, it's all fine and good, but Uh what do we do like actually in the moment or like, what if something doesn't work? I don't know. There's so many questions rolling through my head right now. So I guess jump in, like, what would you want people to start off with the basic understanding of and Mm -hmm. remembering last week, if you didn't listen to it, you should jump back. Robin gave us a fantastic, you know, quick, primer on kind of brain structure, but so what's kind of important to remember
2: in the moment? Sure. So I want to like, kind of preface all of this with same thing for me. Like the most, the biggest question I get, or the most frequent question I get is what do I do in the moment? And I get that. And I get that that's the scariest part. And that feels like the most urgent part. And I'm going to address that. And I just want to like leave a little caveat of like, truly at my core, I believe it's all the things we're doing outside the moment And so I want you to try, as you're listening to this, I want everyone to try to kind of like hold both of those things as truth. Like I totally understand that we need an in the moment idea of what to do. And it really is most important that we focus on all of those moments outside the in the moment piece. So then the next piece of that is um, the piece of, we have to figure out ways when our kids are losing their minds to not lose our minds with them. (laughs) And like, if there's it before we could even begin to talk about a strategy of what to do in the moment, that piece has to get tackled first because any in the moment strategy that's delivered inside chaos or inside our own, severe fear response or our own severe trauma response it's just not going to work Uh, like there's no way around it and so really looking at you know what are my triggers what does my kid do like what can I expect what what do I know my life is really like and what you know really freaks me out and makes me like kind of lose my mind and join my kid right there too because all of us have them I do too and really thinking about like okay I, I ask parents to ask themselves this question, do I have to call 911 right now? And if the answer is no, then you have a moment to connect with yourself and get grounded and regulated. And the more you practice that, the shorter time it takes, like it doesn't take, it doesn't have to take a half an hour. It doesn't have to take leaving your kid or eventually. Um, but I really, you know, feel like that's the bar. And sometimes the answer to, do I have to call 911 right now is yes do that right like use your fight flight freeze energy to do what it's supposed to do and that's to intervene in a crisis and keep everyone safe right and so if somebody's being physically violent or you know your your safety's at risk then just let your brain do what it's supposed to do to keep everyone safe but if the answer is no like your kids screaming and cussing at you or doing something that's definitely bad or destructive or maybe even not safe but isn't Elevated to like somebody's really in imminent danger here. Then at the very first thing we have to do is go like, and what's happening for me? Where is my healing? You know, can I take one second to go? You know, take a good breath with a great exhale, and really connect to our own like green zone thinking brain, like the highest part of our brain, where we can then make a good choice about what to do next, but also deliver that intervention from a place where that child is um, experiencing us as safe instead of dangerous. Because if we're dysregulated, our kids are experiencing us as dangerous, and there's no hope that they're going to come into regulation.
1: I don't know if you remember what this exact statistic is, but I know that when you first joined us for your first episode talking about scary things with kids, you talked about you know, how our kids take for every like 11 bits of extrinsic data, they're taking in like thousands, tens of thousands of bits of intrinsic data. And so,
2: yep. Yeah. So the the, the, explicit versus implicit, right? Like all, like what I'm saying, like what we can concretely attend to is the limited amount of explicit data that's coming into our brains. Like right now you're hearing my words talk, we're on a video screen, so we're looking at each other. We've got all this explicit data we can, like, consciously attend to. And then at the same time, there yes, there's the 11 million bits of unconscious underneath that we are processing. So, yes, so we have to do more than just think about what words we're saying and be very attentive to the way that we're being. I think that's so important to remember because
1: we get really good at saying the, like, I'm here for you. Mm-hmm. Here are your choices. Can, you know, yep. can we have a compromise? But sometimes it comes out so frantic because all we want, we just want it to stop.
2: <laughs> right.
1: For the love to stop. Like that's what we're thinking and feeling. And all of our like 11 billion bits of intrinsic data, are exactly. but we're like, okay, um, what can I do to help you? You know?
2: Yes. And really all that's about it is just noticing, like going like, wow, I'm a kind of freaking out here and (laughs) like it sounds so it's so simple and so complicated all at the same time but so much regulation comes through just noticing and sometimes if it's appropriate actually saying that out loud like just match what's happening for you like oh my gosh you're freaking out and i'm starting to feel like i'm gonna freak out here too (sighs) right and so like naming it ourselves all the things we tell our kids to do name it to tame it you know, take a breath. Like we want to do, you know, all of those things for ourselves first. And and we have to, because then if we're if we're offering uh like like a verbal redirective, like are you asking or telling? Or, um, I need you to use your words, please, or can you ask for compromise? Or if we're moving to a more what I'm gonna talk about, like a more regulation based uh, you know, experience to help regulate, if we do that in a frantic way or in a scared way or or in this way, again, of that, honestly, just get it to stop. It's just a normal human experience. I think you could feel like this just needs to stop without feeling this like frantic fear thing. Yeah, you know. So I give ourselves permission to feel life in reality, right? Like, well, this needs to stop. This is extremely uncomfortable. I want this to stop right now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I hate this. Right, but without like, see if you can have those very true thoughts of honoring your own experience without it. Becoming frantic or joining the dysregulation energy that's underneath it—it doesn't. Yeah, or the fear that's
1: like, like you said, you know, stop and think. Do I need to call nine one one? But sometimes that, like, it needs to stop. Comes with, and if my kid doesn't learn how to stop, like, if we keep having these episodes in the grocery store, my kid's going to be in jail by the time he's eighteen. Like,
2: yeah. So we we start future tripping you know, that that's a sign, like know this about ourselves, that as soon as we go to that, like my kid's going to jail, I'm going to have to send him books to read in jail or whatever, you know, we go to this place. That's just a sign. All that is a sign is that we've left the present moment. And I can't do anything to help my kid if I'm not here in the present with him. That's all. I mean, it's, it's like, oh, that's my sign. I start to go like, I'm bailing him out of jail. That's a sign I've left the present moment. Okay. Come back to present here and now. Cause my kid needs me here and now He might yeah. need me when he's in jail too, but in this moment <laughs> he needs me right now. Yeah. Future tripping is just a sign that we're dysregulated and then left the present moment.
1: Well, and I love what you said about even just the noticing and using all the things that we tell our kids to use for themselves on ourselves. Cause sometimes that's, we go immediately to what does my kid need? What's the, you know, communication behind the behavior
2: yep. and it's yep. all kid centric. Yes, yes, yes.
1: Yeah, our, but, our ki- yep. but our kid has the behavior, so that makes sense. But, and we talk a lot about this here at the Adoption Connection too. It's kind of one step ahead of the game. Like, you kind of have to start with yourself. Like, do I need a drink of water or a high protein mm-hmm. snack? Do I right. need a breath? Right. Like, do I need to use right. my words? Like, all right. of right. those right. things could very much apply to me. Like, did I not get Absolutely. enough sleep last night?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> And if your kid isn't like throwing things at you, you can do all those things, right? Like you could say like, hey, you know what, buddy, I'm going to pause and we're going to come back to this in a second. Like sometimes kids are dysregulated, but they're not so dysregulated that you could absolutely do that. Sometimes you can't, right? You can't pause for a high protein snack or a- right. <laughs> anything more than a, <sighs> okay. Because again, like if you think back about what we talked about with the brain last time is like, I need the energy energy. I need the energy in my body. I need some sympathetic arousal so that I'm attending to what's happening. But as soon as I go fear-based, I'm starting to lose connection to my prefrontal cortex. And now I'm just not making good choices based on all the information that I know about how to help my kiddo. Right? So I want, it's okay to have energy. I've never tried to convince people to stay calm through these things. Right, like it's okay to have sympathetic energy. It's okay to feel like, like this has to stop right now. It's okay to even say this has to stop right now in some situations. Right, I'm not asking for calm. I'm only asking for regulated.
1: How do we know the difference, and what permission can we give ourselves? Because I do feel like that's a really high bar in some of those moments for parents to stay calm. (laughs) Because and I'm a high energy person. Me too. At my at my calm, like my calm is not everyone else's calm. So could <laughs> talk about the difference between calm and regulated in terms of like the energy level. Cause I think that's really freeing.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Is, um, would it be okay if I like walked you through and you may, if it, it, you and anyone else who's is trained with me before may have seen or heard me do this before, but just like a 30 second experiential that will help the listeners feel the difference in their nervous system. Yeah. Do it. Okay. So I want to preface this with if you're doing something that requires your attention, like driving, just (laughs) listen and come back to this later. Okay. So if you're (laughs) listening in a place where you can just pause for a second and really like get connected to your body and really hear my words without multitasking, um, do that. Like just get a little comfy in your chair, check in with your body. I'm going to take you through just a really brief 30 second exercise that will help you embody this difference between regulated and not regulated. And then we can apply that to regulated with energy. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to repeat a word. This isn't, I did not make up this experience, this experiential, but I'm going to make I'm going to repeat a word. And as I repeat that word, I want you to just notice what's happening in your body. No. 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 All right, and for everyone listening, I want you to take a breath. <sighs> Good long exhale, just kind of like let all of that energy go. And just notice for a second what happened in your body as I repeated that word. And I want you to notice what happens next as I say yes. 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 And can everybody just take a breath? Long exhale. And just notice what was happening. Do you, Melissa, would you mind even just sharing what that experience was like for you? Yeah.
1: yeah. So the, like I'm wearing earbuds because we're recording and talking to you. And so it's like coming in, like at the same point in my body, the nose, like head down my body, like they're huh. very weighty. Uh huh. And like almost a little oppressive. And then the yeses like escaped like up my body, of course, uh-huh. which was a much shorter journey just because I have, ear, you know, they're coming in at like, uh-huh. level, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> but it was very yeah. free and Like I felt much lighter.
2: Yes. Yes. You're describing, and most people do when I do this like in big groups of people, and I'll ask some people to tell me how, what, what, what that was like for them. You're describing the difference between like a closed and reactive state of the nervous system. Amygdala on, fear center on, versus the other state of our nervous system of open and receptive amygdala off. And it really is a binary system. like it's either on or off. either my amygdala is on and I'm closed and reactive, or my amygdala is off and I'm not. I'm more open and receptive. Now, of course, if my amygdala is on, it, there's it's like a, a dimmer switch, right? Like it's on a tiny bit or it's on a ton, right? But it is just an on-off system, and then a dimmer that goes along with it. And so, think about a time where you would have needed some sympathetic energy, and it wasn't because you were afraid. Some people talk about going to a sports game and being in the audience, and it's like ten seconds to the end, and you know, it's like something super exciting is happening. Everybody's cheering, 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 cheering. Or you know, I've um, I'm outside shooting hoops with my kid. And we're having fun, right? So I've got some, or I'm exercising. I've got sympathetic energy going. There's active, there's activity in my system. I'm not calm, but I am not dysregulated. I am not at risk of becoming dysregulated really, right? Does the difference, does that make sense?
1: It does. So like almost the sense of control, right? Like, so I'm at a sports event, you know, it's very, you know, down to the wire, like the energy is high, but I'm not going to make a decision that I'm going to regret. Like my energy, is high, but I'm still in control versus like amygdala on full force. Like my energy is high. My fear is high and I'm doing things that I probably wouldn't do if my brain was stopping me.
2: <laughs> right. I mean, you're really talking about the ability to stay present with our energy or not right? Like if I'm, if I'm having a lot of energy, but I'm still fully engaged in my brain and I'm having a lot of presence. Yes. I'm making choices about what to do. I mean, Dan Siegel says regulation contains the ability to both monitor and modify. I can check, I can notice what's happening for me and I can change it if needed. Mm -hmm. Right. If I'm at a sports game and everybody's yelling and screaming and cheering, I can monitor and modify that. If I need to, I don't need to modify it because everybody's doing the same thing. It's socially appropriate. If I'm at church, I'm all of a sudden like, whoa, yay, go, go. I might need to do like monitor and like, ooh, whoa, like not appropriate for the situation, right? <laughs> so it's not about it's not dysregulated per se. It's just not appropriate and I need to modify it. Right. And I can modify it. That's because I'm still maintaining regulation, even though I have a lot of sympathetic energy. Yeah. So that's where we can be with our kids. If if I'm with a kid who has sympathetic energy going, and but they're fear-based and they're yelling and screaming, like, they're like, their energy is big. It's okay for me to stay energetic. I just have to make sure I'm doing it from a place of regulation and not fear. And that's about noticing how those two things feel different in your own body. So is it
1: helpful then when we do kind of match our kids energy to help them start, like, do we almost need to match the energy because they're not recognizing us with all their sympathetic energy. If we're too low energy.
2: Yes. Yeah. Like as humans, we really need this experience of feeling mirrored and like gotten and seen. And part of how we help people feel that way is we match their energy. Right. So think about a tiny baby, right. Who's, like laughing really hard or something, right? There's a lot of sympathetic energy going. We get in there with that sympathetic energy and we're like, oh my gosh, you're so cute and ha 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 or whatever, as opposed to, oh my gosh, this is just the most precious baby, right? Right? (laughs) We match them, we mirror them so they feel seen and felt and known. The other idea now, and this is just, I don't know if this is so scientifically proven per se, but what I experience is that the, if we want to help our kids come into regulation, we have to be closer to them regulation wise, right? So if I've got super high energy sympathetic kiddo and I'm working hard to stay super calm and really quiet and down here, I'm just too far, like my nervous system and their nervous system are way too far apart and they can't catch me. Right, it's too much of a gap to bridge. Yep, Okay.
1: So we're in the moment with our kid. We're noticing our own reaction, our own energy level. We're noticing their reaction and or energy
2: level. So then what? Yeah. Yeah. So then it really um, depends on how you're assessing the level of their dysregulation. I am thinking about the brain about like, is this like a mild dysregulation where I could almost respond with just some like redirection. So I think about TBRI kinds of cues like, Oh, Hey buddy, are you asking or telling? Let's try that again. Or, you know, where I'm still staying, I'm staying regulated. I'm staying engaged. I'm actually communicating to this kid, my belief about them, which is that I know they're a pretty awesome kid and they could do it right if they wanted to. Right. But like, or not even if they wanted to, but that I know they have the capacity to do it right. That they're not just a bad kid. They could just ask again. And, you know, that's kind of like intro level dysregulation, disrespect, mouthiness. Um, I have an almost 13 year old. And so we're doing this a lot (laughs) because he's not a complex trauma kid, but he is, his brain is on fire right now. Right. With everything that's happening for him with adolescence creeping up. And so I'm getting lots of mildly, mild disrespect. And so I'm constantly, all right, buddy, try that again. Try that again. Oh, you know, but my point mostly is that I'm staying in a regulated state of my nervous system, right? Like I don't move to, you cannot talk to me that way. You need to stop that right now and ask me more politely. Yeah. It's not so much the words it's the energy underneath the words. I could say like, oh man, we can't talk to each other like that in this house. Let's try again. Like almost the exact same words, but with way different energy. And that's just that difference between that closed nervous system and that open one. That's all that is.
1: Yeah. That playful engagement is so powerful. I stink yeah. at that. But yeah, <laughs> which is terrible. I just figured out I'm a seven on the Enneagram, which we're supposed to be really fun, but I stink at playful Engagement. Okay, I think I take. Lessons. It takes a lot of. Pra- I
2: mean, it just takes practice.
1: Yeah, and yeah. Well, okay. So that goes to another point, which I think I do playful engagement well, like the first thousand times. So, and I was just talking to someone about this the other day. Like, it's the ability to take each incident as an as its own. Like, every time our kid is mouthy to us, it's still just mouthiness. It just feels like not just mouthiness because it's might be mouthiness every stinking day.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, for sure. And I have two thoughts to that is one that's just continuing to do our own work on our own stuff, right? They were not, when things happen repeatedly, we start to lose access to our prefrontal cortex. And then we start to dip into making new meaning out of their mouthiness. Like this kid hates me. This kid is disrespectful. I'm a bad mom. I can't even control my own kid. I can't let my kid talk to me like this, or that makes me a bad mom. Like we start to like fall down that pile mm-hmm. when things happen repeatedly. That's just being human. So that's continued work on checking checking in with ourselves. But also, I don't think we say this enough. I think we have to give ourselves permission to sometimes like or forgiveness, maybe to to just being human sometimes. Yeah, like sometimes the thousandth and one rude nastiness gets a rude, nasty response back from us. Right. You know? And I remember when my kid was little, like three, and just talking to a mom in my mom group and, who was beating herself up over yelling at her kid. And I'm like, you know, sometimes what happens when you're a pain in the butt for a long time is that people yell at you. Right. Like, <laughs> I, that's just life. We can't, we don't want to aim for that. But when it happens to be like, ah, I mean like, oh man, I just was human. Huh? Yeah. And our kids actually need that experience too. Like our kids need to see that. That's like, like you
1: said, like that's going to be real life. Like if you're a jerk to all your friends, like they're going to stop talking to you or they're going to yeah. yell at you or they might punch right. you. or
2: right. Yeah. So we all, we follow it up with repair and oh man, I'm sorry I yelled at you. I wish I hadn't. I'm working hard. Whatever, whatever, whatever but we have to really like give ourselves permission to just be human and not. Right. So
1: there's this like held space. And I think you've said this before, like if we could get it right a third of the time, mess it up a third of the time and then like spend the other third of the time repairing the third that we messed up. Yep. Um, but, and so I think that is key, like that to give ourselves the grace. Cause we all, you know, we're human, you know, not, none of us are super women, super parents, you know, the whole nine yards, we all come with our own stuff. Um, But then also not to take the liberty of that mess up and be like, well, you deserve, you know, like that there, there is a repair of like, gosh, you know, I'm human. I have to, I have to give myself the grace to not carry the shame and guilt of that long term. But I also have to recognize that it, I could have made a better decision. And so to repair that with my child.
2: Right. You're just talking about self-compassion Yeah, for our humanity. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Well, and I think that tells our kids so much too, because, you know, we're talking about what happens in the moment and some kids feel so much shame about that moment. So when we have that same kindness with ourselves, then they can have the same kindness with themselves at the end of something like this. Does that kind of translate?
2: Yep. So then if those kind of more cognitive, playful, they're they're cognitive, we're still trying to get at like their most cognitive part of their brain and give them opportunity to just fall into regulation and not make a big deal out of it. If that doesn't work, what you've learned is my kid's more dysregulated than I initially assessed. That's it. And so then I go pretty quickly to using a more regulated or regulation-based, like movement based or maybe connection based approach. And so what that requires parents to do is pause on the immediate misbehavior. Right. And, and say inside my head, like, okay, this thing that my kid's doing is really bad and I have to address it and they need to know that they can't do it and they need new ideas about what to do instead. But they're way, they are past the point of being able to learn any of that right now. And so I'm going to make my focus just on how do I get back in regulation with this kid? How do I get back in connection with this kid? You could go, they're kind of like, you could go, but either way. You could go into this either way, like through movement or regulation or through connection, mm-hmm. or, or maybe sometimes both. And then after that, you come back to the teaching piece. So for me at my house, that used to look like when my kid was younger you know, and he was starting to get super dysregulated, maybe about like homework or chores or practicing his instrument. You know, that would look if I was being good, you know, if I was regulated, I might look like, whoa, buddy, um, we need to, let's take a break and go, go outside and run around the house really fast. Or why don't you go shoot hoops for five minutes? And then, um, and I wouldn't even say, and then come back to this because that's too dysregulating, but Mm -hmm. you know, or, you know, so I'm going to, I'm going to look for movement ideas, movement ideas that my kid likes, right? So be smart. You know, if your kid hates getting on a scooter, then that's a terrible idea for an intervention. <laughs> right. Um, sometimes you have to get creative and playful because dysregulated kids aren't necessarily going to do what we want them to do. And so we might have to take a little backdoor in about like, Hey, let's race to the mailbox really fast and see who can win right? So instead of like, Hey, I think you need to take a movement break because you're very dysregulated, right? Like we have to be a little bit creative and see if we can move them into some sort of movement based thing. It could be as simple as a smaller movement, like sucking. And so for me, that's offering something through a straw, like a smoothie. I think offering yogurt through a straw is a great idea. Cold, like, And then you can look at like extreme temperatures too, like something really cold, again, like a really cold smoothie, something like that, um, sucking on a lollipop. So movement doesn't have to be necessarily like gross motor movement. I'm going to move my whole body. It can be these like smaller sensory interventions that um, engage our sensory system, help our amygdala feel better, um, help kids reconnect to their bodies, right? So there's all these like regulation pieces that happen first, then we can go back to cortex. The thing, the thing I see parents struggle with the most, well, actually, before I say that, let me say in addition, you can also rely on more of a connection-based intervention. Like, whoa, let's, you know, if it's, let's say it's something as simple as we're sitting down and homework is too overwhelming. Like, let me sit next to you And put my arm around you and let's tackle this homework problem together. Even though you know your kid is completely capable of tackling this level of homework, right? That we're going to look past all of those reasoning things and think about connection regulation. Now, if I'm having like a more of an issue, like, you know, our kids are screaming at us or like it's much more of a intense dysregulation, Then really what I'm doing is staying safe enough or staying close enough to notice when they're, they've come down enough to receive some sort of like engagement from me, but far enough away that I'm not getting hurt Mm -hmm. or they're not hurting me. And I'm, I'm adjusting the environment to like, make sure nobody's getting hurt. Right. I'm not doing anything to try to make this stop. Like you have to stop throwing things at me, obviously. Right. That's a fear-based response. Your kid's not going to stop doing it in this moment because you tell them to. We're going to focus on like staying calm ourselves, doing whatever environmental changes have to be made in order to keep everyone safe, and that could be leaving the area. So your kid's not chucking hard things at you, right? There could there's different environmental shifts that we have to do. Then we stay close enough to notice like the curve, the arc of the dysregulation. You can start to learn your kid's dysregulation signs and notice when has this shifted to, if I offered a drink, they would probably say yes. Mm -hmm. If I offered a snack, they would probably say yes. If I offered like, hey, we are having a really hard time. Let's go shoot hoops for a second and just forget about this, talk about this later, that they might actually say yes. Or, you know, that if I picked up a balloon and lobbed it in their direction, one of my favorite things to do is to initiate something that could be like a game of catch or toss back and forth because if something comes into your visual system you know like sensory wise and you notice a, a balloon coming at you or a ball coming at you or whatever you have handy near you in the house that's not hard hard right, <laughs> right. that's not you're not chucking something at someone you're like initiating this thing like we're gonna catch it and almost always lop it back it's just the way our visual system works so you know, something that starts to initiate some sort of connection, some sort of regulation, allow the kid to come back into regulation and then later return to, hey, like, we have to talk about this thing that happened. Um, and I know some parents will say, like, my kid will never let that happen. I'm like, well, then my answer to that is you just have a kid who's not regulated enough yet. Because all of us want to repair. All of us want to repair. And uh, refusing to repair or refusing to um reengage in the thing that happened, you know, or talk about the thing that happened just means that they're not regulated enough or there's too much shame that comes up around it and they can't yet. And so it's just a process. How
1: do kids who have attachment struggles where, you know, because we have a couple kids who fall in this category. And, you know, I was connected parenting all the way. And I, in hindsight, think like some of the ways that I was trying to connect probably were not helpful because in that moment in their dysregulation, like that was continuing to kind of scare them away. Like it was that thing. So are there ideas about kind of connecting in a way that's like just sterile enough to not like trigger all the like intimacy and attachments things, but Uh still help our kids co-regulate off of us?
2: And I, that's a great thing to be aware of that our kids can only receive so much connection before that the connection starts to feel dysregulating. And so I think offering connection in in these more concrete ways is actually a wonderful way to do it, by offering a drink, by offering a snack, by offering something that you know is going to help them regulate when what you really want to do is punish or consequence them. You know, it doesn't have to come with... and. Um, Now let's sit and talk about it or now let's have a hug or more of these more overt things that, that oftentimes we're longing for because we really want to connect to this kid. We want them to connect back with us, but really, you know, exactly what you're saying. Like, how can I, how can I offer connection and, and, and stay available for your connection. Right. While offering it in a way that's kind of sterile enough that the connection doesn't become more dysregulated. Right.
1: And I like the idea of like tossing something back and forth. Cause I feel like that it goes back to like the rhythmic thing we talked about last week. And, and, and it, I like the idea of understanding how the brain just reflexively will react to that because I mean, you're kind of just hacking, you know, you're like hijacking the brain in a way that's also super helpful in the situation, which is fantastic. We have also found that, you know, obviously, if your lids flip, there's certain things you can't do without like kind of reconnecting to your regulation system. And so like we used to have a kid who would like threaten to run away. And so we would offer to help count her piggy bank with her. Like, oh, well, if you're going to run away, you're going to need some money. <laughs> and then in the process of counting her piggy bank, it regulation it would take her a little exam. while. Yeah. And then you can't do math without like that part. And so it kind of would like, you know, she would get to the end, she would have you know, a certain amount. And then you could kind of sneak in one of those other things like, Hey, you know, it's been a while since you've had a snack. You want to have a snack before you leave? You know, you just kind of like played our like we played into it, but then kind of played it down. And then eventually like when it was actually time to quote run away, she'd be like, well, maybe I want to stay for another night.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you, I mean, you just described beautifully the like concept of really leaning into the dysregulation right? Like you moved into what was happening for her as opposed to like that you can't do that or that's ridiculous or whatever, 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 you know, like you leaned into it and allowed, you know, found another way to kind of sneak in again, some regulation. So first of all, there's like rhythm that goes back and forth in your relationship, right? But then counting the, you know, counting the coins and, and again, having to do some very simple math, Engages the prefrontal cortex, so that was instinctually brilliant.
1: Yeah, it, it only worked like twice, but it was great when it worked. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. Well, eventually, yeah. Like nothing works forever, but but yeah. But now you. But it's the concept, right? You know, and we do have to, unfortunately, keep chronically being creative because as much as these kids, you know, I believe believe in my core, as much as these kids do want to connect and do want to regulate. They also have another part of them that doesn't because it's just so scary. Right. And so there's this constant inner battle that these, you know, these kids have about like desperate for connection and connection has been one of the worst things that's ever happened to me in this, this battle that they're always internally dealing with.
1: Yeah. What do you tell parents who are struggling um, to remember that? Like we all know it in our heads, but sometimes when our kids are treating us, Little Boogers for too long, you know, we start, like you said before, like we start reframing that story of like yep. you know they hate yep. me, they're manipulative, they're controlling, so how do we as parents do the work um and maybe it's the answer is just go find a really good therapist in your area, I don't know, but are there like other simple things that we can do to help stay connected to our curious, compassionate hearts without you know like yeah,
2: well. I mean, yeah, go find a good therapist. Sure. Um, second to that is go find somebody you can be who you can have a reflective relationship with so that, that you trust. So that when you start saying those things like, Oh, he's so manipulative. I'm just so sick of this. Like blah, blah, blah. Therapist says he wants to connect and that's just crap. You know, as you're like, you have somebody who will hear that and hold it for you and eventually give you some reflection that you end up, and by reflection, I just mean like, I don't mean like reframing or I just mean presence, presence so that your brain has its own natural ability to eventually calm down. And then you remember what your truth is, right? So it doesn't, a therapist is a great idea. It doesn't have to be a therapist, somebody who's willing to be with you in that and give you, you know, presence through all that so that your brain can do what it's going to do, which is eventually calm down. Mm -hmm. Um, So that would be like numero dos, (laughs) the next best thing to do. But I also like in my own office, I have like little pieces set in my eyesight so that I can, I have like concrete reminders of my truth, right? Like I have framed the quote, I've never met a true self that I haven't fallen in love with, you know, so that when I'm struggling to remember I have this very visual like representation of like oh yeah I know that's my truth. I know I don't feel that at all right now, but I do I do remember that that's my truth. And I have a couple other quotes and I have a couple like photographs up in my office that help me like reconnect with these things that I know are true. And so I can touch in with them and get some regulation when I can't do these other things, you know, talk to my therapist, talk to a reflective listener. Or um, So for, first, I have to actually really believe those things. Connection's a biological imperative. We don't lose it. It's underneath there somewhere. Like, I have to really believe that. Um, and then, yeah, I've truly been strategic about placing things in my office so that I can go, oh, that's right.
1: And if there's someone listening who, I don't know, has a connection to like a wallpaper manufacturer and <laughs> wants to... Create, you know, wallpaper for all of us, that'd be great. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, no, I think that's great. Um, And I've heard people talk about even like remembering back to the first time you saw your child's picture or the first time you met him or her, because I think those are tend to be the times when we were feeling all the truths that we know. Um, Or a baby
2: picture, I've heard people say that they find like the youngest picture possible, but especially like a crying baby so that they can have this memory, like this terrible behavior is just the crying baby. Mm. The crying baby didn't have the motor skills to throw things at me or the language to cuss me out. But this behavior is just the crying baby. Um, And I've heard parents say that that could be a helpful way to kind of ground in the moment too.
1: Yeah, well thanks for all those tips. Um, Do you have anything to say to parents who feel like they're always in the moment?
2: (laughs) Oh yes. Yes, I do. And I, 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 when I teach this workshop that I teach, I have a slide that's specifically about that. Like, what if this is always your kid? <laughs> so then I I mean, if you're, if you're talking about like constant escalation to the point of danger, throwing, you know, like chronic real danger, we're just talking about how, like this kid needs probably a higher level of care than an in-home environment. And that's sad and tragic. But until we can figure out a way, some, sometimes psychopharmacologically, you know, with meds or, you know, to at least calm this kid's system enough that they can be safe out in the real world, we might have to explore some of those kinds of options. If you have a kid that's like chronically disrespectful or chronically irritated and they're always like, no, 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 I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. My best advice to parents is initially really focus on, Again, kind of all that outside the moment stuff, even though it feels like it's always the moment, but constantly be thinking about like nutrition, hydration, movement, sensory needs, structure, predictability, like all these things that as parents, we could kind of control or provide in a way that isn't um, overtly connection-based right? But that, you know, we're we're wanting to get at their brain and at that, that lowest level of like real brainstem stuff, food, nutrition, movement. And then, and we have to lower our bar that comes along with it. And remember that like, nobody wants to be disrespectful. Like we're designed to be in relationship with each other and certainly with the people who are keeping us alive. And so if I can get this child's brain calmed down in these other ways, more appropriate behavior will emerge. And I re- I work with some of the toughest kids on an outpatient basis, right? Like I'm an outpatient therapist. I don't work with kids that are escalating to inpatient status because that's not what I offer. But I'm at a point in my life where I work with the toughest kids and I have seen I have seen this happen over and over and over again. If we focus on those pieces, trust – that if I regulate their brain, eventually I will be able to say, "Hey, could you try that again with respect?" And they actually will. And I've I've seen it happen. Yeah, I think that's huge to hear
1: the hope to know that we just have to keep doing it and that these things work and that there is a true self under all the throwing and the cussing and the just crazy. Uh, and so I appreciate that because I know you do work with really hard kids, and you know, there's always that like little person in the back of your head that's like, does this work with all, you know, like, of course. does this really work? Does this, it really work with all kids? Is it going to work with my kid? I'm this, sure I'm the only kid that this isn't going to work
2: with. I'm, Oh, I have those questions too. though, as a therapist too. Like, Oh my gosh, maybe this kid is, is going to prove me wrong. That's just me being dysregulated. And I've learned to like notice that sometimes in the moment, but almost certainly after the moment, you know, and I've got my kids that I identify as the hardest kids that I can go like, nope, if it worked with that kid, I have no reason to think it's not going to work with this one. Yeah. So. Well, Robin, thank you so much
1: just to be available for to share your experiences, to share your wisdom, and for just really practical things that we can do because that's helpful, super yeah, helpful.
2: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, always my honor to be here and, and talking with you and, and reaching more people. I'm so grateful for your platform. So thank you for having me.
0: Wow, I just love Robin. She is so gifted and so generous to share all of this with us. I think the thing that I'm hearing from her that strikes me the most is that really before we can calm our child, we have to calm ourselves. And I know that, but having more tools is just hugely helpful. And if I know if it's helpful for me, it's probably going to be helpful for our listeners as well.
1: Yeah, one of the things that I'm not sure came out completely in our conversation, but I have heard her say since then, which I just has been rolling around in my mind is the difference between calm and regulation, because it's such a radically, I think a little bit different concept um, and such a nuance, but I think one that could be so transformative in the way that we see our kids when they're starting to, you know, get out of control. So anyway, I just, I've been thinking a lot about that.
0: Yeah, it's definitely something I am going to apply and really work with with my kids because I think
1: it could help a lot. Again, if you want to connect more with Robin, she does some amazing webinars. She's been partnering with a lot of amazing guests. You can find her on Facebook under Goble Counseling and her last name is spelled G-O-B-B-E-L. You can also check out her website and blog at globalcounseling.wordpress.com. If you don't want to remember any of that, or you're driving or washing dishes and up to your elbows in soapy water, you can always head to the show notes for links to that. In addition to links to part one of this interview, as well as where to find Robin, Robin's also been gracious enough to give our listeners a free download. So you can check all of those things out at the show notes at the adoption connection.com slash 26. We've come to the part in the podcast that we call Mentor Moments, where we answer a listener question. So this week's question is, when you have been in the trenches and people say things like, you knew what you were getting into, or it was your choice to adopt, or something similar, or they give off that vibe, how does one gracefully respond?
0: Well, I think it's very hard sometimes, especially when we are just so raw because we are giving it everything we've got and i you know i think it's okay to say yes we did choose to adopt and we made the best decision we could based on everything we knew and you're right we didn't know what we were getting into because i don't think anything can prepare us necessarily for the degree of trauma and that that our children have experienced and the challenges that they bring. It's, um, you know, we, we went through a lot of training before we adopted. And I mean, I had a background in mental health and we went to a specialized training just for people adopting from Ethiopia. And we did, you know, all the training that our agency wanted us to do. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for all of that background, but wow, I, nothing could have prepared us for a child with the degree of challenging behaviors that we faced from the very, very beginning. And I also think it's really easy for people to think that they know how to fix it, or if they were doing it, they could do it better. But you and I know, all of us, my listeners listen to us, we all know that that's not true, because you know what, they're not doing it. And I could get a little hot and mad here because I've faced this a lot. I mean, I've had people tell me that they when I've tried to explain about attachment disorder and complex developmental trauma, you know, I've had people tell me, Oh, that they know all about that because they learned a little bit about it when they were in college in the course of their degree. And I just think, wow, well, you know how I learned about it? I learned about it because my child was diagnosed with it and my child was attacking me and my child was exhibiting these extreme behaviors. And there's a very big difference from learning a little bit about it and living it. And so I think we can be gracious in that we don't punch them in the nose or, um, you know, say something really, really rude. But I also think we can be honest and just say, you know, I appreciate your concerns, but really we have all the resources and help that we need, and um, thanks for your opinion or whatever. What do you think, Melissa? Melissa? guess I had a lot to say about
1: that. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I agree with all of that. And we had a similar situation where someone else thought that they knew better than us. Someone who was actually willing to help our daughter emancipate herself from us because she thought we were so much of a problem. And (sighs) I know, I mean, the stories, people, you just can't make these things up. But I would say, again, to me, being graceful would be not punching them. And I think, it actually is super graceful to be really direct because this is a person who may say this to some other family down the road, unless maybe they have an encounter with someone who's willing to put their foot down and say, that's not helpful. You have no right to say that. That's just not helpful in any part. And I think a lot of times people say these things to us because our pain actually makes them feel uncomfortable. They're uncomfortable watching us walk this out. And They need to point blame somewhere. And so they point it back at us like it's our fault because we made that choice. And none of us knew what we were getting into. It's just that plain and simple. And I would just also say I'm a really big fan of boundaries. And so I know that this is a really sticky situation, especially if the person who is implicated in this question is a family member. But, you know, we have enough on our plates to deal with. And we can have loving, firm boundaries with people who continue to contribute to our trauma and our crisis. And it is a long, convoluted story, but I actually have had to make boundaries even with my parents, and I love them, and we live with them. And But we had a dark moment where we did have to have some really hard conversations and I had to say this isn't okay. And you know what has come of that? Now their whole preschool is trauma-informed. So I think there's a way that we can do this in a way that preserves relationships, but is also really direct. And just like our kids, we cannot control how other people respond to us. And so I'm really grateful that my parents listened and were able to have an open conversation. Maybe you have friends or family members who can't, and you can't control that, but I think it's okay to draw a boundary for yourself.
0: And I think with people of faith, one of the best things we could say is, you know what, we, we prepared as best we could. We didn't know this was what it was going to be like, and we'd really appreciate your prayers.
1: Absolutely. So if you would like to submit a question for a future episode, you can send your question to email at com, or our favorite option, call it in so we can hear your voice at 208 208- Seven four one three eight eight zero. It doesn't ring anywhere. It's just literally a recording hotline. If you would like to talk through any issue that's affecting your family more closely, we would love to grab a quick chat with you. We offer private coaching. Your first session is always free. You can find more information about that at theadoptionconnection.com slash services. and was created by Lee Rosevier